0: Seven trumpets, and we're getting ready to head to the seven bowls later on. But I, I want to just, as we as we look at this, this seventh trumpet, which will bring about the final judgment of the wicked and, and a final reward for the righteous, we, we see a pattern developing, right? Um, the seven seals, just to go back to mention that, we saw there that the same story is told, and, and I've mentioned this in, in the way that we interpret Revelation. Uh, is going to be cyclical rather than a linear uh, kind of interpretation where the whole book continues to unfold, different future event, different future event. Uh, I believe if we read Revelation, seeing it as a repetitive storyline of the history, God's redemptive history, being told in three separate scenes, and yet all of these scenes, especially when you look at the scenes of the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, they are repetitive. They're not new things. They're repetitive things telling us the same story of God's victorious, um, grace over sin and Christ, the lamb of God wins. So having said that we've got the seven seals, right? They told the same story. What did they do? They repeated seven judgments, right? They repeated these judgments upon the earth and man's continued refusal to repent. And then the final seventh seal was what it was the end, the final judgment. And we're going to see that tonight. And we're going to see that in the seven bowls as well that six seals come and the seventh seal or seventh bowl is opened rather, and it's the same. So I just wanted to get that in our minds again of what we're seeing here in the book of revelation. Now, having said that, let's notice this. And again, an easy way to remember this, just if you're, if you're writing notes in your brain, basically there with, with the seals, the trumpets and the bowls that we'll look at in a few weeks here or a few days. Um, they are three different scenes telling the same story, right? So again, the idea of cyclical. Now, look at verse 15. We've been waiting on this trumpet, right? Because he mentioned the, the angel going to open the trumpet, but it's been a couple of chapters. Now we're finally here to see that seventh trumpet blow and see what happens. So verse 15 says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now that should sound familiar, this this verse, verse 15. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of our Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah, hallelujah, right? This This is the hallelujah chorus. This is what Handel... What, what inspired George Frederick Handel to write his Messiah, right? So again, during Christmas, right, we, we hear this a lot, this glorious uh, oratorio um, that was meant to glorify the majesty of Christ. And it's interesting to think about this as we, we think of Handel when he was composing this piece. Uh, he said these words, he said, I did think I did see all heaven before me and the great God himself. And when he said that, he wasn't talking about seeing it as John saw it. You see, John is seeing heaven through a vision. You see, Christ is revealing all of Revelation to John through a vision. But Handel saw the very same glory through the word of God. That's what he was referring to. He, As he studied the word of God, as he prayed over the word of God, he saw heaven itself. And God himself on his throne, as we have seen over the past months, looking at just the book of Revelation. We have seen God upon his throne. We've seen the heavens open and the glory and the majesty of, of Christ. It's interesting also to think that during the 24 days in which he composed the Messiah, he didn't eat much. He, he many times went without eating because he was so caught up in what he was writing. One, one account says that a servant found him weeping over the score uh, for the text attributed to Isaiah 53. As he was reading Isaiah 53 and writing this glorious praise to God, he was weeping. And, and again, this, this, this work has inspired millions now over the years. I, I believe, without a doubt, it has inspired millions, uh, including King George II, to, to give all majesty and praise to Christ. The story is told of King Henry, I'm sorry, King George II, the, the when he first heard the hallelujah chorus, it's told that he leaped to his feet in order to show reverence for the superior sovereign that was in his presence, the exalted Christ. And that's exactly what, what we see in, in the book of Revelation, and that's what Handel saw as he used the book of Revelation, as God blessed him with the ability to, to use his art and his artistic expression to to give us a work that magnifies god solo dea gloria to god be the glory now let's notice some things here as we as we look at that that verse it's notice something interesting it didn't say the kingdoms of the world have come have become the kingdom of god it says the kingdom of the world singular and, and that's on purpose that's That's language. That's why we have to look at the words in the Bible. It's not kingdoms. It is the kingdom of the world. And I think the reason is, you see, Jesus is not going to come back to earth and fight certain kingdoms and say, okay, I'll I'll defeat this kingdom and then this kingdom and then this kingdom. i got to go over and fight these guys. And then i got to try to fight these guys. Nope. All the kingdoms of the world throughout the ages are basically and have basically been controlled by one master. If we look back through history, you can see that there's a principality, the Bible speaks of the principality of the heir, who is the devil himself on this earth, and he's influencing all of the leaders of all the nations, therefore, in a sense, putting together an antichrist coalition against God and his morality. We see it today like never before, right, in our world. We see, never before have we seen such a unified front against the word of God, the values of God, the morals of God. Uh, so, so, it's 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 universal today and i could go into illustrations but we know what they are richard phillips puts it like this he says all the secular empires are actually one earthly kingdom under the reign of satan including the, including the roman empire the monarchies of europe nazi germany the communist regimes of russia and china and the pleasure-seeking humanistic societies of, of america and the west when christ returns The kingdom of the world will yield to the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Beautiful. And that's exactly what verse 15 is telling us. He shall reign forever and ever over the kingdom that has been aligned against him through Satan. No more. That kingdom will be overthrown with a word spoken from Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. And ever, and I think that's glorious because that, that term, he shall reign forever, speaks of his kingship. Now, again, in the Bible, we see three offices throughout the Bible that have been attributed to Christ. He's a prophet, he's priest, and he's king. And all of those offices show a picture of Christ, like the high priest in the Old Testament was, was a representative of one who went between God and sinful man, and he would make a sacrifice for them, and he would mediate between God and the people. Because the people couldn't get into the holy place of the temple. Only the priest could get back there and offer the sacrifice on behalf of the people. Well, that's a picture pointing to Christ. You've got the prophets. What do prophets do? They speak forth of the glory of God. They speak and reveal to us the glory of God. And that's what Jesus is. He's the prophet. And he's also, of course, the king. So when you think about it, Christ is our great king who will reign forever. And this should give us great comfort, folks. These titles matter. And this is where we put our trust. What the Bible reveals to us about who Christ is gives us confidence. Christ is our great king who will reign forever and ever. Christ is our great prophet who will for eternity reveal God's glory to us. And Christ is our great high priest who will forever make intercession for us. here's Here's what is important. As long as Jesus lives, you and I... Are completely secure and safe from condemnation, from judgment, from ever falling out of heaven. It's impossible because Christ forever lives to pray for us, to intercede for us, and, and to reveal God to us, and to be a King reigning over all things on our behalf. So that's glorious. But notice this. What's the response to this first verse? I I love this because we read verse 15. We see this glorious proclamation that, that the nation of the earth, the kingdom of the earth, will give way to the kingdom of Christ, that he will reign forever and ever. So it's a proclamation of the victory of Christ. And then the response you see in verse 16 is one we've already seen in Revelation. Look what it says. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God. It's the only right response, correct? I mean, when we hear the glory and the majesty of Christ and the victory that he has obtained through his death, burial, and resurrection, and now he has conquered at this point in this vision, this is the last Trump has sounded. Christ is, is, is now victorious, and he is ruling and reigning over all the earth What other response is there but to fall upon our face before him and worship him? Now, we've already mentioned in Revelation already, we've been uh, introduced to the 24 elders already, and we've already explained that they represent the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles of the New Testament, giving us a total of 24, which shows us a picture of all of the saints of all the ages, the Old Testament believers and the New Testament believers, so what we have here is a symbol, a picture of all of God's people gathered around his throne and worshiping Christ. This is what we're going to do, folks. At that last trump, this is exactly where we will be, in the presence of God, once and for all, and worshiping Christ. Now look at verse 17, because here's, here's the song that they're singing. Look how this praise moves into a doxology of praise. Verse 17, saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. So again, it's a a proclamation of the beginning of something. This is, again, where we're seeing in the seventh trumpet, this final trumpet, something's happening that's different than it's ever been before up to this point. History is now changed forevermore. We see that Christ now is the ruler of the kingdoms of this world. They have now passed away. The kingdom of this world has passed away. and He is now the ruler of his kingdom. And now in this verse, it says that God has taken by his great power and begun to reign. This is a finality of of this, this eschatological moment that we've all longed for, right? The fulfillment of all that God has promised redemptively in history has come to pass. The enemies are defeated once and for all. Satan is defeated once and for all. God's people are now gathered. The new heavens and the new earth are established. And forever has begun, (laughs) is what it's saying. Now I think it's interesting. Look at this. This is is good. Notice something missing here. Didn't it sound odd when we read verse 17? Let me read it again. Then we're going to compare it to another verse. They sang, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and was... You have taken your great power and begun to reign. Now let's compare that with verse 8 of Revelation that we saw earlier. When the, when, when, when the 4 and 20 elders fell down again and worshiped, and they said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Right? We're used to hearing that, correct? Holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty who is and was and is to come. But now... In chapter 11, verse 17, after the seventh trumpet, after the last final trumpet has blown and eternity has begun, notice it simply says, the Lord God Almighty who is and was. What's going on? I think what we see here, this this glaring omission is purposeful. The omission reflects the fact that with the return of Christ, the final return of Christ and the seventh trumpet, it ushers in eternity. And what that means is futuricity. Our, our future, that's a hard word, Futuri, futurity, futurity, right? The idea of the future has been removed from the name of God because at the sound of the seventh trumpet, glory is now and forevermore. Does this make sense? So, So there is no need now to say he's the God of the future because we're in the future. I mean, we are in eternity. There is no eternity to come because we're in it now and forevermore. It it will never be old. Does that make sense? We're not going to understand this stuff in these little finite bodies. I'm wasting my time here, right? We're all going to go mumbling out of here like babbling idiots because of losing our minds. We can't figure it out, but boy, what glory it is to look forward to, to look forward to the mysteries that God will reveal to us in Christ. And these are the promises, but man, he hints to us (laughs) like by taking a word out to say, hey, I don't need that word anymore because I am the future, and and the future is now. You've heard those commercials, right? The future is now. Only Christians one day will really be able to say that. We are living in the fulfilled future of God forever and forever and forever. Man, exciting. Now, what else do we see here? Verse 18. They continue this glorious doxology of praise, And it says this in verse 18. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. That's a lot in verse 18 here. It really is. I know we sometimes read over these verses, and we're not really kind of get kind of glassy-eyed and (laughs) keep reading. But look at some of the stuff that's happening for, for, for one thing, I believe verse 18 here is basically the world's history in one verse. The history of the world in one verse. So let's notice what's going on here. It's telling a story. It says, the nations, the, the nations raged, but then your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants came, is what it's saying. It's kind of giving us a chronological report of history. Here's what, here's what the world was like. Nations raged. They raged against God until his wrath came. <laughs> and then also along with his wrath came the time to judge the dead and to reward the righteous. So look at this. I, I think what we, w- w- what's glorious about this is this has basically been the op- modus operandi or modus operandi of the world since the beginning. And I think the psalmist caught this, and he recorded for us in Psalm 2. I want to read that because... This really sounds familiar with the language of Revelation. The nations raged, it says, until your wrath came. That's exactly what David said in Psalm 2, verses 1 through 3. Listen to this. David asks, why do the nations rage (laughs) and the people plot in vain? The kings of earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So David's really prophesying here, isn't he? He's saying, here's what the world does. It's done it from the beginning and it will do it until the day God comes back and finally judges the world. What the world does is they they rage against God. They rage. Now David's asking a good question. Why do you do that, silly people? Basically what he's saying, why do the nations rage against the sovereign God? (laughs) But they do. And they set themselves against him. And look what it is. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, that's Christ. And, by the way, we, if we are in Christ, are his anointed people, so they rage against us. And again, don't take it personally, folks. And especially in the days we live, it's going to get worse and worse. As we stand for the morality of God's word, if we stand for the simplest truths of how God instituted marriage, or how God uh, uh, instituted gender, and all these. And, and as we stand and simply proclaim those things, we're going to be hated, and we're going to be called haters. But their grievance and their anger is not for us; it's for the one we represent. It, it's it, they they rage, and they've always raged against God, and they've always plotted about how can we get rid of God. And that's what it says. What are they plotting? Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Let us break this bond that God has on us, this cord, this this rope that's tied around us called morality, called the Ten Commandments, called the law of God. We want to break, we don't want that. We want to be our own gods. We want to do what we want to do. So how can we get rid of this? And of course, what will happen as time goes on in society is they will say, hey, wait a minute, the real weight upon us here, the, the, real, the real party crashers here, the, the, the whatever you want to call us, the real people causing us problem are those Christians, and if we could just shut them up, we'd be happy. If they'd stop making us feel guilty with some old, outdated book, and if they'd stop talking about that, we'd be much better off. they cause all the problems. You see, that's what's going to happen. And so this is how they're plotting, right? How can we do it? And and we've seen it throughout history. It's happened in different cycles, right? Nations try to wipe out all Christianity. They try to wipe out all of God's word. They burn Bibles. They arrest Christians. The church is forced to go underground, like we talked about last week in China. And, And then they declare things like Mao. The chairman Mao declared back in the 60s, Christianity is dead, he proudly proclaimed. Only... To have 70 years later over 150 million believers underground still growing as the church cannot be stopped because god is all-powerful and his gospel is unstoppable and yet they, they they continue to rage against god they'll continue to rage against his people and they'll continue to plot on how they can hurt and demean the message of god and shut it up but i love what david goes on to say <laughs> Verse four: He who sits in the heavens laughs. laughs. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. It's like David is just by God's grace prophetically looking through time, and he sees the story of history. Just like Revelation has just revealed to us as well in that one verse, it's the history of of mankind they rage against God, they hate him, they rebel against him until his wrath finally comes. One day he, he will speak fury, his wrath will come, and they will be terrified before him. And if you put all of that history together, folks, that's the reason that Christians are compelled to preach the gospel. That's why we proclaim Christ, because he's the only hope of salvation from the wrath of God. That's it. That's why we do it. And instead, the funny thing, isn't it ironic that we're preaching this message of repent, turn from your sin, turn to God, run to Christ, the provision that God has given us for salvation. And as we preach that, we're labeled haters, right? We're, we're, late, we're labeled old-fashioned and mean and bigoted. How narrow-minded you people are. But again, folks, we see the whole picture. I think it's so interesting. What David shows us, folks, is that God in his word gives us a true perspective of this world. What the world thinks of themselves is actually false. It's a blurred, they're looking through a messed up uh, window, a, a window covered in sin and marred and distorted, and it's not reality. God gives us the true reality in his word. And so David's looking through it. He says, this is what I see. This is what's going to happen. And so because we have the word of God and we know that the, the end is not good for any human who rebels and continues to fail to repent before that God and trust in Christ, because we know that we all the more preach Christ. We continue to proclaim. If our family makes fun of us, if they disown us, so be it. We see a truth that supersedes, that transcends the here and now. And and if we really love them, folks, if we really love people, we're we're not going to stop telling that truth. Yes, in love and gentleness, but we're going to continue to warn people of the wrath to come, as the apostles said. Knowing the terror of God, we persuade men, the apostles told us. And we have to have that same attitude. So having seen this, what we see, again, is this, this concept that, Paul, that David's talking about, a final resurrection, a judgment, and a reward for all. That's what he's saying, right, in his, in his thing. He said, God's going to come, he's going to speak, his wrath's going to be seen, and he's gonna be, there's going to be terrifying fury. But then David goes on to talk about, which I didn't have time to read that whole chapter, how that the righteous will have blessing and reward. Well, that's exactly what we see in Revelation 11, verse 18. I'm going to read it again for you, um, just so we can, you know, rehearse it. Here's what he said. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the, for the dead to be judged, and the rewarding for your servants. So I just want to put those three elements together. What happens all at once here? People are angry at God, but all of a sudden, it's time for judgment and reward. You see it right there in the same verse. So so I point this out for a reason. I think it's important. Because God's word consistently speaks of a single combined judgment of the wicked and the righteous, all at one time. Now again, I know there's different ways to interpret revelation. There's the dispensational view that talks about a one like Christ comes back once secretly and he leaves and then just seven years relation and then he comes back again but i think again as we look at the scriptures we we, it doesn't give that much evidence there's a coming of christ no doubt we all believe that christ is returning and he warns us to proclaim that but when he returns every eye will see him paul said every eye will see him and they will be in terror just like just like david said they'll see the wrath of god and they will be terrified And that's what Revelation is telling us as well. And also, just to show you again, this concept is not just new in Revelation. It's been the concept throughout the Bible that there is a one-time judgment. When God returns, that's it. He takes, He judges the the wicked, and he rewards the righteous, and he sets up his new kingdom, and eternity is ushered in. Daniel 12.2 gives us an example of that. Look what it says there. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. This again is that that last day that Daniel's talking about. Some to everlasting life and some to to shame and everlasting contempt. So they're both happening at the same time. There's going to be... Everybody's come out of the ground, he says. When the Lord comes back, the dead will all stand before God. And they have been now raised from the dead. And what happens? Some will be resurrected to everlasting life, which is good. And some will be raised to shame and everlasting contempt or judgment. So there's a picture of that. Is there, I'm just saying that's what the Bible says. Matthew 25 is probably one of the greatest parallels to, to Revelation 11. Look what it says. And look what Jesus says. This is Jesus talking about the end, the final judgment. Verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him. Then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. So when the Son of Man comes, what happens immediately? All people are gathered before him, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. And I think we all understand the significance of goats and sheeps, right? The, the goats represent bad people <laughs> and the sheeps represent the good but anyway the, the the sheep are his people jesus said in john chapter 10 my sheep hear my voice and i know them they they follow me right and and so we're his sheep but the goats are not and, and when's that all going to be determined when christ returns when the son of man comes in all of his glory right then and there there's a great separation taking place the goats on one side the sheep on the other. He goes on to say the goats will be cast into everlasting torment and the the, the sheep will be brought into the everlasting joy of the kingdom. Enter now into the joy of thy salvation, he says. And there we go. Now we're back in heaven in Revelation chapter 11, praising God, worshiping Christ, the conquering king and saying he shall reign forever and ever. Now, very quickly as we kind of wind up, We've got to see this picture in verse 19. Look what it says. Then God's temple in heaven was opened. So again, all of this is happening in one fell swoop. The final trumpet blows. The last trump, by the way, the seventh trump of Revelation is the last trump that Paul talks about. When At, at the last trumpet sound, that's the seventh trump. And, and at this time we see God's temple in heaven is opened. This is where we're going to be spending eternity, folks. And this is why, this, now, all of Revelation, there's a lot of symbology here. We've talked about that. There's symbology all through the Bible. Do you realize the tabernacle, the tabernacle in the Old Testament, and then the temple with all of its furnishings, like the altar of incense, and, 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 and the Ark of the Covenant, all the things that were there, where God's glory dwelled was a picture pointing to heaven and its ultimate worship place. All these models on earth were simply giving us little humans, a little glimpse into heaven and what that will ultimately be about. So what we see now at the end of all things, final trumpet is blown. The wicked have been destroyed and judged and cast into hell. All of God's people are now in his presence forevermore. A new heaven and a new earth is established. And now we see God's temple is open in heaven. Now look what it says. And the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake and heavy hail. So a lot in this verse that we look at first, the ark of the covenant. This is just harkening back to the language that God has been using all through the Bible to talk about himself and talk about his heavenly worship that's going to be happening in heaven. The tabernacle, the temple, they were models of the throne room of God, giving us a glimpse into the holiness of God. And he's inviting us through Christ Ultimately, come into my presence, but he's showing these symbols throughout the tabernacle. So you've got the blood having to be sprinkled on the the mercy seat, and the priest has to go back to the the ark of the covenant and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat in order for there to be any access of the people to have fellowship with God. But then we see, two thousand years later, Christ on the cross is that final sacrifice his blood once for all is sprinkled on the mercy seat in heaven and applied there for us for all eternity and now what this is simply showing us in revelation 11 19 is that we're all seeing this now we're all in heaven the temple is open we see the ark of his covenant now what does that mean does that mean is that where that ark is nobody can find it right the ark of the covenant indiana jones has tried <laughs> Everybody's talking about the Ark of the Covenant. You see writings about somebody discovered the Ark of the Covenant. We, we you know, nobody's face has melted off yet or anything by opening it and all that, but like we see in the movies, but but we can't really find it. Nobody really has it. Is this where it's at? Is, it, is this what it's talking about? Is, is the literal Ark of the Covenant in heaven? No, folks, I don't think it's talking about that. I don't think we're going to care about that. <laughs> this little man-made gold-covered ooh how great right gold-covered piece of wood that god has given us to as a symbol for something greater no 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 the ark of the covenant always pointed to jesus even in the old testament it was pointing us to jesus and all that god is saying here is you now see the fulfillment god's temple is opened and we see christ that's what he's saying when it says and they saw the Ark of the Covenant was seen in the temple. No, it's Christ is seen in the temple. The fulfillment of that Ark. It's just figurative language pointing us and showing us the continuity throughout Scripture that this is who he have been talking about. Just like Jesus has been talked about as a, as a lion. He's been described as a lamb. Now he's just simply being described as the Ark of the Covenant because he's all of those things throughout Scripture. So, I hope that makes sense, but I want to move on to something else. Just a, a, another continuity here. We have a split screen view going on with, with all these visions. There's like a split screen, right? Split television screen. Simultaneous things happening at once at two different locations. All right? So, you've got the view of God's wrath against the wicked happening in this world when the Lamb returns and they're, they're, that's all being destroyed. And then you've got the resting place of the saints also happening on this screen at the same time in heaven, right? Immediately, I mean, here's the crazy thing. At the seventh trump, immediately, Christ will come. And this judgment is, is quick. When he calls out his people, just the sorting is very quick. God tells almost allegorical stories for us about sheep and goats, and I'm going to separate. It happens immediately. He already knows his sheep. He doesn't have to sit around thinking, okay, let's see who my sheep, let's see. are You, you look like one. No, I think you're a goat. No, it's, he knows. It's all done. So the seventh trump sounds, and immediately the wicked are judged. The wrath of God falls upon this earth. It's destroyed and remade, and and Christians are immediately with the Lord. Boom. We're in that presence. So it's all happening almost. What's the word? Lickety-split? I don't know. There is no word. It's it's exact at the same time. And, And so what I'm saying about that is we have the same language in verse 19 that we have at the end of the seventh seal the seventh trumpet and the seventh seal go together and this is proof my friends i believe that it that the bible in revelation is a cyclical story it keeps telling us the same things in different ways they're not new events they're the same story told in another scene okay they just keep reviewing like a good teacher does it reviews it tells you here's the lesson plan today we're going to cover the same material now we're going to tell you the story with a few other examples same truth that's what's happening Now, having said that, let's compare Revelation 11, 19 with Revelation 8, 1 through 5. This is the last seal, and we'll compare the seventh seal with the seventh trumpet. Here's what happened at the seventh seal. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets We're to them. So right away, the seventh seal is open and he's already getting ready to show the next scene of seven trumpets to tell the same story. But it says this. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. What you have there is another picture of the temple, the altar of incense, which was right there next to the Holy of Holies, where the where it was to be burning all the time, and that represented the prayers of God's people rising up to him. And, and so in heaven again, what do we see at this last seal? We get a glimpse of the temple open for business again. It's it's the end, the final seal. Now in heaven, what do we see? We see this picture of the temple again with a different furniture furnishing that pictures christ how do we pray to christ by the way do we pray through mary do we pray through some saint dead saint or do we pray through christ in christ's name he's the one mediator between god and man and that's the picture of him in the temple the incense his his, he's taking our prayers before the father and look at the so, so so what i'm saying there you see this glorious picture At the end of all time, with the seventh seal, God's people, in God's presence, praying to him, worshiping him. But you also see, look at this, you also see, it says, Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Same language we just saw with the seventh trumpet, right? So I'm just saying, I can't help but see this. I hope we can all see this. It's the same reassurance that God keeps giving us. Here's what's going to happen. He's saying, here's what's happening, my saints, my people. The end is going to come. There will be judgment, quick and fierce. There will be redemption and eternal life in the same twinkling of an eye. And we will forever worship the the Lamb of God in his temple in heaven. That's what it's saying here. So I hope we see this. All right, I could go on. i got to just say this. I'm going to just read this little statement. This is encouraging to us. That's all I want to do. Just encu- I think that's, again, what is Revelation about? It's really not about capturing the, the latest stuff happening around here with the, the newspaper, right? Say, oh, the newspaper matches up with Revelation. That's got to be this guy, or this, this, this war over here has to mean this. That's been happening for centuries, folks. We've had so many uh, antichrists from Oprah Winfrey to Donald Trump to whatever, right, to Hitler to Mussolini The point, though, of Revelation, again, is to encourage the church that is suffering persecution, pain, resentment, tribulation in this world. What Christ is saying is, persevere. Even if you die, now you're one of the martyrs under the throne of God, you're still safe. But no matter what, folks, the end is coming when God will bring total justice, He will judge the wicked. He will destroy them in the lake of fire, and he will bring all of his people home to glory in the presence of his temple forevermore. That's the hope of Revelation. That's that's why it keeps repeating this to us. It's not really our job, folks, to worry about who the Antichrist is. What are we going to do, stop him? That's what some people, it almost seems like some people, they get into all these books, and I was was a big left-behind series guy. I got into all that. They were great writers and good fiction. But, what are we gonna do some people here talk about like we gotta find out who the antichrist is so we can stop him really this, that's part of god's sovereign plan just like that's just like trying to stop judas from betraying christ we'd be in bad shape if you did that if you if somebody actually stopped judas because that was part of god's sovereign plan for my ultimate redemption jesus had to die now i know that's deep and we're all thinking "Woo! now where are we going but my ultimate point here was we don't need to worry about all that stuff we don't need to worry about what's the mark of the beast is it the chip is it the vaccine is it the kroger card (laughs) you know what is it we don't have to worry about all that what revelation is telling us is keep looking unto jesus the lamb of god who conquered for you though the dragon tries to fight you right? Though the demons of hell are released in tribulation throughout the ages, it doesn't matter. They can't defeat you because if you're in me, you're secure forevermore. <laughs> That's the good news. So for those of us trusting in the work of Christ on, on, on our behalf, we trust his work on our behalf. It, it, it's good news to know that Christ is coming. It's good news. This what we've read tonight. It, it is good news. And, and we will one day hear that trumpet and join the throngs in heaven crying out, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of our Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father God, we are thankful that you love us so much. We can't even imagine. We see a glimpse of it in Christ as you crush your son for us in our place, that we might become your righteousness because of what he did for us and then we see it father in the fact that you've given us a book and we've read it tonight and your spirit is strengthening us us through it so father thank you for that grace thank you father that when our faith fails and we get weak and the skeptics surround us and we get shaken in our flesh your spirit and your word come along and they bolster us up they pick us up they set us on the solid rock of your never failing promises which all point to christ and our hearts rejoice again so father thank you for that keep us strong as we leave here let us be bold in your service in this world you've still called us to speak to an enemy that is raging against you give us the boldness to continue to proclaim your name knowing that you have us covered for eternity